ladies and gentlemen, you have made it to Brave to the Bone podcast, where we explore the dynamics of human courage in its most dynamic form, personal transformation. What does it take to dive into the unknown of ourselves? Who can help us get there? How scary is it to face our own edge? And what are the magic tools that we can use today to explore ourselves on this journey of healing just a little bit more? This is your host, Tanya Gilbert. I am completely blown open and excited to offer you this interview with Michael Mead, who is a renowned storyteller, author, and scholar of mythology, anthropology, and psychology. He combines hypnotic storytelling, street-savvy perceptiveness, and spellbinding interpretations of ancient myths with a deep knowledge of cross-cultural rituals. He has an unusual ability to distill and synthesize these disciplines, tapping into ancestral sources of wisdom and connecting them to the stories we are living today so that we as a whole of humanity can better understand ourselves. You are going to love this. Enjoy. Michael Mead, it is a tremendous honor, a honor of my lifetime, if I'm going to be honest with you, to have you on my podcast. I started this podcast about transformation because it was something that I needed to go through. And during that time, I discovered you and your work, and I heard your story and your work. And I want you to know that whenever I am uninspired, that I pull up some of the stories that you tell from all over the world to help humanity better understand who they are. Can you tell my audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Good to be with you, Tanya. Well, basically, I'm a, a storyteller or and or a mythologist. And so at an early age, I got interested in myth, not knowing that it was a, a vocation, you know, just I was interested in it, but no one else was, not at school or anywhere else. And so I kept it to myself to a large degree. And then eventually I just got so full of stories that I like had to tell them, I had to get them out. And, and, and eventually that led to becoming, in a sense, a dedicated storyteller. And in the course of doing that, I realized that stories are not only the thing that connects people with each other, but the thing that connects people to nature and the thing that connects people to the cosmos. And I began to realize that stories are the traditional way of making culture, but also that stories carry knowledge that you can receive directly from the story. You know, years ago, I was at one of these conferences where there was people giving papers and and different things, a lot of highly educated people, a lot of well-known people. And I was telling a story and uh, and then someone said and that I was interpreting the story and I was interpreting it mythologically, psychologically like that, you know. And then someone said, well, where did you get that idea from? And I said, the story. And they said, no, no, I mean, which book did you get it from? I said, I got it directly from the story. If you listen to a story, it will teach you directly. And people, they couldn't believe it. It became an argument about whether you uh, had to learn ideas some other way. But stories will awaken ideas as well as feelings, um, emotions, and memories in a person. It's almost like it's this untapped wealth of nourishment for humanity. And I feel like that's what you're really doing is delivering this unexpected thing that's been right in front of us since the beginning of our culture. Yeah, it's the ancient way of having very big ideas, but marrying them with images and and having characters that are bigger than life, but that connect to details in our own lives. And, and stories often have a descent. Something goes wrong. Like if the story is, there was a beautiful little girl and then she got ice cream and then everybody loved her and she loved everybody. Well, that's not a story. People go, well, what happened? But if you say there was a beautiful young girl and then she got lost in the forest and strangely, no one went looking for her. Now we're in a story. Then you're going, okay. That feels right to me. Somehow people haven't been looking for me at critical times in my life either. And the next thing 
Everybody wants to know what happens next in the story. So stories typically have a descent in them. Something is not just dangerous, but something pulls the person into a place they wouldn't choose to go. And I think that's the world we're in. We have been pulled into places that we would not choose to go. Climate crisis, pandemic crisis, crisis of truth and meaning, crisis of justice and hate and misogyny. All the crises are on at the same time. We are in the deep part of a very big story. So it's a mirror for us to really understand who we are, not necessarily exclusively for the bigger outside world, but also as we see it in the a fantasy of us being separate from it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Two big stories, the ongoing drama of the world and the story of the individual human soul in that drama. And the two things are deeply interconnected and interrelated and That leads to this amazing thing where uh, a meaningful change in the individual affects a change in the world. That what we decide and what we do with our life drama has an effect in the world. And people know that because most everybody now agrees that humans have damaged the world and caused some of the climate crisis. Well, if we could damage it, maybe we have the capacity to heal the thing we damaged. And so we are implicated both in the collapse and the trauma, and we are implicated in the healing. Didn't I hear you say at one point that since the beginning, when we first had paper, that human beings were recording their discontentment, their fear, their agony with their perceived um, unraveling of the world as they understood it? I wrote a book called Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World. And you have to start a book somewhere. And I started with a fragment of a papyrus paper, the origin of paper in ancient Egypt, papyrus being the word for paper. And so this fragment is known. And in the fragment, it's, it's like an ancient poet in a way, writing down on one of the original documents ever found, uh, utter discontent with the, his society and the world that people have turned against each other and people are full of hate and violence for no apparent reason and they won't stop. And not only that, but no one's taking care of the environment. This is like 5,000 years ago and or something like that. And so, but what happens is astounding because as he's lamenting his soul in in ancient Egypt, they call it the basal, B-A, basal. And it means like, It's closer to what we call conscience and the awakened sense of soul. His soul says, this is no time to give up and no time to consider taking your own life. Listen to me and stay together with me and we'll one day go to the other world together. Then the the soul says further to the lamenting man, the soul says, go back to the beginning and reconnect to your life at the beginning, something to that effect. And so the beginning then that, that was imagined to, in myths all over the world is not that the soul comes into the world empty. The soul comes into the world gifted. Each soul is unique. That's a simple thing that people knew. Each tree in the forest is unique. There's a whole lot of fir trees, but each one is unique. Nature only makes originals, and that includes humans. So each soul is original and unique, and each soul is gifted although each soul is also wounded. So when the soul tells the kind of despairing man to go back to the beginning is to go back and connected to the aim and the giftedness that's natural in the soul. And so I start use that to start the book and say, we're in the same condition. This has happened to humanity before, never to the degree that it is now with, with uh, culture collapsing and nature unraveling. This is really unusual, but not the problem of the world and the human soul. That's not unusual. So part of, I, part of what I think we have to do is accept both that we are wounded and that healing our wounds affects the wounds in the world, but also accept that we are gifted and that if we can 
go through the wound in a sense to find the gifts which are hiding behind the wound, then we know how we can help. So I wrote another book called The Genius Myth. And the idea that is everyone is a genius in their own way. Not that everybody is brilliant and everybody's super talented, but everybody has gifts from the origin of their life. And some people are gifted to do medical, what we call medical work, but some people are drawn to help people who are about to die. And those people are reinventing funerals, reinventing how people approach the door of death. And some people are gifted in such a way that they can immediately connect to the mycology, all of the mushrooms underneath the trees that are feeding nourishment to all the growing things. And they know how to help affect the whole system of nature by affecting the mycology world, the world of mushrooms. And so the trouble has gotten so big that everybody's being called upon to go back and find their original gifts and then use those to help heal the world. That's, that's the message that I get from stories. I love that you talked about the mushroom. I'm interested in the cutting edge therapies that are out there in the world because what's happening is these new therapies for trauma and PTSD, for example, like psychedelic therapy, what I see it doing is it's changing the authority figure from outside of ourselves and bringing it back into the authority of the deep healer within. And you mentioned you're starting something about the wounded healer. What I see in Western medicine is for the years I've been a nurse, we have this um, sad, tired culture of pretending to be perfect, this obsession with perfectionism, this Barbie nurse. And I see in deeper healing and in shamanism and people doing their inner work that they have to embrace and hold their own pain. That that is where the authenticity is really leading. Key word is healing. The word heal means to make it whole. It often means to make it whole again. That's what we need to do with the entire earth, the whole planet, as people say. But that's what we need to do with the whole human culture also. And so then on the archetypal level, so archetype is, you know, probably know this, but archetype means original form. So there are archetypes, like one is the mother archetype. And, and so the way I understand it, someone's walking down the street. Let's say it's a, a young man, um, not ever going to be a literal mother, but he's walking down the street and he hears the, the cry of a baby and looks around and there's a baby in the basket on the street and someone's left the baby there. And he doesn't go, oh, that's someone else's problem, or, oh, I don't know what to do, or, or why did this happen to me? He just goes over naturally, picks up the baby, makes sure it's okay, gets ready to protect it, and, and starts looking for who can help here. Well, that's called the mother archetype. The mother archetype awakened in him and moved him into action and moved him into at least knowing how to start taking healing the situation or helping uh, the poor, vulnerable infant. So archetypes are like that. They have an aim and they activate stuff in us. So one of the archetypes that's been activated is the wounded healer. Not the healer going and fixing the wounds, but the healer who is wounded. So there's two parts of the ar archetype, the wound and the healing. And the story is you can't become a good healer until you admit face and to some degree embrace your own woundedness because then you have empathy for those who are sick and those who are wounded you have sympathy for what they go through and then it's really hard to explain it simply but then what happens is you're on the healing path you're on the healing path because you face your own wounds and the healing path is a really wonderful complicated path of learning, of remembering, and being inspired. But you can't be properly on the healing path without acknowledging how you are wounded, or we are each wounded. That gives the sympathy for healing. One more thing. So the, the archetype of wounded healer, um, like the archetype of the mother. So here's a young man, this little anecdote I was giving who becomes a mother in the moment. He's, he's a mother. He's the only mother that child has. The mother protects, nourishes, 
and cares for, well, he's the one doing it. So in that moment, he's the mother. So that shows you that it's not gender-based and it shows you it's not age-based and you don't have to have a literal womb. You have to respond to the archetype. And then there they are. He's the one being the mother and there's the infant. So there's two sides to the mother archetype and there's two sides to the healing archetype. I'm not sure if I'm making sense. Absolutely. So rather than saying you cannot heal others until you heal yourself, that is in fact true, but you actually need the original wound in order to become a healer. It opens up the healing path. One of the big mistakes in the modern world is not to understand these archetypes and these mythological elements and how they work. And so as a result, humans have wound up believing that they're separate from nature and they're separate from earth and they're separate from cosmos. And that's only true at a certain level. It's like the young man and the baby. He's not really separated from the baby. As soon as he realizes that baby is innocent and in danger and crying, and he recognizes the pain that's in the crying, partially because he has been there himself somehow, uh, then those two are related. They're not separated. You know, the one who says, well, that's not my child, so I'm not doing it. That's the one who is separate. So in healing, you could say, you look at the symptom to see the solution. Symptom is a Greek word, which means it fell on you. It fell on you. Something fell on you. It happens to all of us very early in life. Something fell on us, and that becomes our core symptom. Uh, the fact that we weren't accepted, the fact that we rejected, the fact that we weren't cared for in the way that we needed to be cared for, that gives everybody abandonment issues and fears of abandonment and so on. So the symptom falls on, on someone. And then the, the trick of it is that the cure for the wound is in the wound. One way you could say that is often people look at a symptom looking back to say what caused it. You know, where did it come from? Why did it go into this person? But eventually you look at the symptom going forward. What is the symptom aimed at? Polarization in the culture is aimed at finding unity. Hatred of one person towards another is aimed at finding how each person is connected secretly through the soul. You take the symptom and you see what it's aimed at. And so when people say, well, what's the next world? I'm always saying, we're at the end of an era. The world that we thought was the world is already gone. Some people are trying to claim they can go back to it, but for the most part, it's gone. And we're in between the loss of one world and, and the kind of uh, vision and connection to the next one. And then people say, okay, okay, I'll accept that. It's scary, but I'll accept it. But tell me what the next one is. Well, that's tricky. Uh, into the unknown, so you have to let go. You have to let go and you have to be in the darkness of not knowing. All knowing comes at the edge of not knowing, except people make believe that's not true. So the Western world, which claims to know everything, remember the Enlightenment? That was going to shine a light on everything. Everybody was going to know everything. Well, how'd that work out? We're in the endarkenment now. And that means learning from the dark. That means descending to the depth of the soul. That means letting go and trusting that knowledge will come. And like at the beginning, I said, you can learn directly from a story. You can learn directly from a dream. You can learn directly from the dark. You can learn. So we're in that in-between stage between the end of one era and the other one that, that's trying to begin. But so my answer to what is that going to look like is not pretending to prophecy, but say, take the symptom and you can at least see what it's aimed at. And so all our symptoms now have to do with separateness and division. Polarization in politics and throughout culture, but also COVID. COVID literally has separated people. It's made more clear the separations that exist. COVID has a much heavier kind of a weight and you know, sickness upon, upon people who are poor, people of color, and so on. It's showing the divisions and it's intensifying the divisions just the way the solution is in social distancing, you know, uh, in order not to infect each other and so on. So you can do the same thing 
on a bigger scale and say that a time of polarization is not simply stuck. It's a tension of opposites intended to generate greater knowledge, greater willingness to unite, and I would say creativity. So back to myth. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, myths all around the world, lots of myths uh, about creation, but they all start in chaos and darkness. In the beginning, there was nothing there except the endless dark sea. Um, and then the heavens got separated from the earth and light came in and the world began. That tells you everything, every time you're in a big tension inside oneself, inside the community, inside the culture, that tension is not there to break things. It's there to create enough tension to find a new thing, a third thing that wasn't present that's waiting to be found. Wow. So, so we are in the tension of creation just as much as we're in the tension of collapse. And, the, and so I've, I've been imagining it is we are all being called to be wounded healers. Each of us to say, you know, kind of here's my wound. I understand something about how I'm wounded. I was one of those children left in the basket on the street. I was, at least when I needed it, I was abandoned. I wasn't taken care of. That's a wound that makes me insecure, that makes me fearful, that makes me unable to stay in relationships, that makes me doubt others and even hate others. If I attend to that wound, something starts to change. And that which seems so dark begins to open as a path. And these days, I think the paths that we're being called to are the paths of healing. Interesting. I'm seeing that a lot as well. Yeah. And you, you used a great phrase that you said you were interested in cutting edge, things happening in medicine, things happening in nature. Well, notice the cutting edge. That's what divides two things. That's the, that creates, makes the creative tension, the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. And if you take a literal wound, a wound, I sometimes call the wound, the womb, but anyway, if you take a wound in the body and you're going to heal it so it doesn't get infected, you have to first separate it further. You have to get a clear cutting edge and then you have to make sure there's no uh, infection and then you can start to heal it. And when it's healed, mostly talking about the flesh, when it's healed, you have a scarred area that is stronger than the rest of the flesh. Wow. So there's another how you know, the, the, the wounding and the healing actually make a person stronger. And so everyone who's denying their woundedness, oh, let's see, most of the people running corporations, most of the people running governments, some got elected who will never admit they're wounded. If someone doesn't admit they're wounded, that means someone else is carrying the wound for them. That's what you see in the mistreatment of certain kind of people. The ones in power say, we're not wounded. And then that wound falls on the people who don't have power. But anyway, if everyone would get closer to saying, as a result of all the disturbance climate-wise, uh, the emergency of climate, as a result of all the pain, suffering, and death and loss of the pandemic, as a result of the psychic disturbance in my own psyche, in my own house, in my own community, I realize I'm wounded. Mm -hmm. That's the beginning of finding healing, and it's the beginning of helping heal all those huge things that are the wounds of the world. You spoke about a deeper understanding of everything is when we let go into the unknown, that the unknown is actually where all the known is. And I remember you saying it's like a wave, a huge wave is coming and you're surfing. And what you do is you have to let go of everything because if you don't, if you hang on, you know, there's, that's where anxiety and pain is. But when we really let go, that's when we can come into it. So are we in fact now in a time of just a dark night of the soul for our, the wholeness of the world? I think so. I mean, maybe it can get darker. Maybe it has to. I mean, one of the few things that will wake people up nowadays, it seems, is tragedy. And it seems to take more and more tragedy to wake people up. And, and I'm really sorry about that because there is such a thing, and, and you were talking about it in your own background, there is such a thing as intentionally going into the dark, intentionally going into the wound which means tragedy is not required. So I have to say one thing there about modern people. 
early on, I got attracted to ancient people and what people were doing. And for me, it was simple. Like as a young person, that's how I got into myth. I remember thinking something's wrong around here and the newspaper doesn't seem to solve it. And the religion that I was brought into doesn't seem to solve it. And certain school doesn't know what's going on. And so I started to look back to ancient stories and then you find ancient practices too. And so in those terms, people, I mean, girls and boys, young women and young men used to get initiated. They used to go through a rite of passage and the rite of passage was a really interesting thing. It was intended to move a person from the lap of their mother to the lap of the great mother, move a person from the practices of their family to the awakening of their own soul and what their life might be as a unique individual, as opposed to being a family member. And it was really the movement of the soul of the person from being childish and a bit of sleep into an awakened state that was intended as near as I could tell to wake up those inner gifts. But rite of passage began with the separation. So I say, we've already got the separation. We've got more separation than we could possibly deal with. That means we're in a rite of passage. Then the next thing, in a rite of passage, there would be a wound, not to do harm to a person, but to remind them that they're wounded. So in many rites of passage, you would get a cut on the arm or a mark on the face on the body. So you would never forget that you are one of the wounded people seeking healing. So now people are getting wounded all over the place, psychically and, and physically, without getting the benefit of the wound. The benefit of the wound is the realization that I'm, I'm here to heal myself. Heal means to make whole. And when I'm a more whole version of myself, I have access to my gifts which could be the gifts literally of healing, the nursing nets in some people naturally, instinctively, but it could be the gifts of working with water systems. And it could be the gifts uh, of, of bringing people together who don't agree. And I'm saying right now, everybody's gifts are needed. That means everybody's wounds have to become more conscious. Wow. You also, if I'm remembering correctly, you went through your own rite of passage in some experience of intense solitude. Is that correct? Long time ago, I was drafted to go to the Vietnam War. And I didn't agree with it as, so I wrote them a letter back and I said, you know, look, it's not a declared war. It's certainly not a wise war and it's not going to work out very well. So I'm not going to come. But if you have another war, let me know. Well, I thought that was like courteous. Anyway, the next thing, <laughs> The next thing they're banging on my door and saying, you know, you're, you're either going to jail or you're going into the military and complicated situation because part of a person's wound is their family. I call it family fate. My family was all in favor of war. My father had been in World War II. I had aunts that were in World War II. I had uncles that were in World War II. My, everyone in my community was in favor of the war. And when I asked my mother, she said, our sons always go. And I said, that's a little bit general, mom. But anyway, so I wasn't self-aware enough, strong enough to buck that. I knew it was wrong. I knew it wasn't right for me, but I was carrying the thing. So I went, decided not to go to jail, went into the army. In the army, it turns out they give you orders. Turns out I'm not good at orders. Like I'm saying, oh, that's a bad order. I'm not going to do that. Anyway, I wasn't a good soldier, so they put me in prison anyway. So I wanted them in jail anyway. And then in prison, they give you even more orders. And I'm saying, no, don't you see, I'm not doing orders. So then I wound up in solitary confinement. And in solitary confinement for months, I was there with just myself. Um, and in the midst of that, all kinds of fears and mm, terrors and dread and loneliness and anguish and all things from childhood coming back. And somewhere in the midst of it, what started to happen was um, I'm all by myself, literally, that's my condition, solitude. All of a sudden I'm having visitors. No one else can see them, but I'm having visitors and they were characters from stories and they were showing up 
and giving me advice and, and stuff like that. And the next thing I realized I was either losing my mind or I was finding my mind. And I decided I was going to go with finding my mind. It became this real visceral in the depths of my self connection, connection to story and imagination. And that helped me get out of it. But also when I started, when I got out and I started to recover, I was on that path. I had to get back somehow to this uh, situation where characters from story, or you could say mythic imagination, was saving me from dying all alone in a prison cell. And so there it is, the wound opened the pathway. And then I've been trying to figure out how to live on that path ever since. The magic, the literal, real living magic in the world really saved you then, and you've continued to share it all over all over the world still to this day. Well, that's what it's become as an attempt to do that. And it's interesting, too, because what I'm trying to do, what I feel called to do, I haven't seen anyone else exactly do. Mm-hmm. Or when I started telling stories in pre-COVID times, I'm playing African drums while telling Telling so that's a whole story into itself, but I'm doing that. And I didn't know what I was doing. I just stumbled into it. And then I found out that's the ancient way to tell stories, whether you're in ancient Celtic lands or you're in ancient Siberia or you're in Africa or South America. Uh, you had mentioned shamans earlier. The storytellers are often playing drums the way the shamans do wow. because the drum opens the imagination and the eyes of the soul. People can't resist. They're pulled into that rhythm. They're pulled out of the rhythm of, oh, I'm just a small person. Nobody gave me what I want. They're pulled into a bigger story. So I was actually finding this ancient thing, just like in the prison cell, something ancient found me. Uh, But when I started doing it, it, people would say, you can't do that. You know, I remember I was at some folklore society and, and someone said, so wait a minute, I have a question. Is the story that you told the same story told with the rhythm that you used on a drum from the original tribe. And I said, no, actually I'm playing an East African rhythm on a Cuban drum. And I was telling a Celtic story and they said, you can't do that. And I said, I I just did, you know, and I realized I can never make them understand. This is not an academic exercise. This is not an attempt to repeat history. The story is alive and it wants us to be alive to meet it. And that means that it can change and we change. And so I wound up, I had found something for sure, but now I was in search of an audience that would just, you know, want to be there for what's happening. I should explain what I stumbled into when I tell a story, I'm not reciting. I I don't rehearse. I get to know stories. Certain stories come back. And I realized, oh, I have to tell the ones because I could be crossing a street and a story will come and then I'll know that story wants me to tell it. And then the way I understand it, I have to tell it as it appears today so that the story is new each time. For me, it's partly new because the audience is there and it's a different audience and so on. I hope that's making sense because it's this creative thing that I don't know the next word coming out of my mouth when I'm telling a story. And people can feel that. And we're on the cutting edge. Wow. Boom, you know, and I just stumbled into it. And so that gives me the felt sense that we all could be stumbling into the things that we don't know that we need to know. Wow. The story is alive and we need to be alive to meet it. That is incredible. That's how it, that's how it seems to me. I loved one of my favorite stories is the, the run towards the roar story. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love all the details in that one. It's, it's brilliant. Well, that's where we are, right? So that's from the plains in Africa, from, from the Serengeti plains, you know, where the, the antelope, you know, come in a herd bouncing along. They're so beautiful and elegant. And, but the lions live there too. And so, uh, so the story goes that the old lions lose their teeth, but not their roar. What they do, they know the antelope instinctively, as soon as they hear anything like a lion, they're going to run. And so the old lions who cannot bite, but can roar, are on one side of the plains. And then the healthy lions are on the other side. And then here comes the antelope 
you know, century after century. And the lions that cannot possibly attack them or bite them roar. And all the antelope instinctively turn and run the opposite way where all the young lions are waiting for them. And some of them get devoured. And so that's the story they tell to young people when they're about to enter the world. So the teaching is when you enter the world, you can be devoured. You can be devoured by many things. But don't be fooled by the roaring of the trouble and don't try to avoid trouble. When you hear the roar, go towards it. That's the teaching of the story. So that's where we are. The world has become dangerous in all directions. People are getting devoured all the time. They're devoured by conspiracy theories. They're devoured by conflicts. They're devoured by fear. It's all over the place. And the thing is, I would say, the, the, mm, the medicine is get into the right trouble. Head towards the roar. Get to, because the right, so no one can avoid trouble now. You know, that's how it looks to me. Where are you going to turn? All of nature's in trouble. All of culture's in trouble. So we're in the middle of the, of the Serengeti. And, and the idea is go towards the roar. And so that connects to an Irish myth. Secretly, the myths connect like the mushrooms do. Um, they're not the same, but they connect. And in the Irish myth, they say when it all falls apart and there is no center, that's how we live now. Where's the center of politics? It's gone. That leaves polarization. Where's the center of understanding disease? It's kind of gone. Mm -hmm. You know? And so we're lacking the center, which is also the symbol of wholeness. And so in the Irish myth, it says this happens. The world falls apart. When that happens, go to the area that looks darkest and most dangerous to you, because there you will find a thread. And if you can get to that place and find that thread, that's your thread back to wholeness, back to the center of yourself, back to the genius that you came into the world with. I sometimes call it the genius thread. And all you have to do is pull that thread. That's our job. Our job isn't to fix the world. That's too heroic. Our job is to find our thread and live it with meaning. And so then the idea is if enough people find their threads and pull them back to the middle, the world gets rewoven from the threads of individual souls that were just brave enough and foolish enough to live a meaningful life. Beautiful. Brave enough and foolish enough to live a meaningful life. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I was in a position at 20 years of age where I was either losing my mind or I was finding my mind. It could have gone either way. A lot of people are faced with that and they instead they judge themselves. We judge ourselves so much. Yeah. And that comes from the wound. So the usual wound is abandonment like the baby I was talking about. And, and that's not simply to blame parents and all that. Psychologically, what it means is if we're each a unique person, a unique soul, that's what all the stories say until modern times. Um, modern times, people say you're a blank soul and the, and the world writes on you. No, no ancient culture had that. Every culture I can study said each child is gifted. That's what Christmas means. Christmas has become literally given gifts, but Christmas was really the birth of the child that was gifted. It's not a religious thing. It was actually a human psychological thing. So then if each person is gifted and unique, then it so happens that the parents, no matter how good their intentions are, can't give the child everything it needs when it needs it. And at some point, something in the child is desperate for a certain kind of attention, what we probably call love. And mom may be a perfectly good mom, but she has other children. She has a, a relationship with a husband or somebody. And she has a job nowadays. She has a job. And so mom turns and is not there. And that's enough for the infant to feel on a psychological level, completely abandoned and on the edge of annihilation. They say that's when the ego is born at that edge. Wow. So then the ego is the little self that pretends it's the big self. And life will throw us into trouble so that our little self will let go and say, I can't do it. That's the main thing, right? Any healing begins with, I think something's wrong. Any therapy begins with, I can't figure this out. The ego says, I can't do it. And then what happens is there's a chance to heal. 
that original wound of abandonment, rejection, which appears in the daily judgments we have about ourselves. And we and those judgments are usually patterned. We repeat the same pattern. Oh, I always mess up. Or I never was, you know, everybody has their own little mantra mm-hmm. of, of self-rejection. Mm-hmm. So most people throughout their lives are abandoning themselves and repeating the original abandonment. Wow. Because there was no resolution until they find a resolution. Yeah. Yeah. Because so the child can't fix this the child dependent. Humans are more dependent than any other animal. Uh, and so the child goes through dependency. And that's why the ancient people somehow understood at the end of childhood, you, you, childhood is a developmental process. And developmental psychology is brilliant about studying and understanding how the child develops. But come 11, 12, 13, 14, it's, you know, it's different for different people. The developmental process is not what's going to work anymore. This is true in school. This is true in community. And what happens is a leap out of childhood into, you're supposed to leap into the real life we came here to live, but now there's no one there. There's no, there's no ritual. There's no community usually there to say, okay, now you're going to leave home. You're going to leave everything behind and you're going to enter nature in order to find your nature, which would be rite of passage. And so most of us didn't have the rite of passage that we need to awaken to who we actually are inside, which is the beginning of understanding the calling that we're called to do something. I mean, just from what you've shared with me, you're called to heal somehow. And so you went to nursing, which is a brilliant, brilliant. I mean, nurse is one of the greatest archetypes of all. Um, because it has to do, it nurses the child, it nurse, nurses the grown-up, it nurses the forest. It's just this brilliant energy nursing, but not in the modern world. Nursing is secondary to doctoring and, and all this stuff, and it's all become technology, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But so then you're moving to become another kind of nurse. And, 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 and so that's, that's a calling, I would say. So, but we only find the calling after we let go and say, this isn't working. This isn't working. And so rite of passage was to put each young person in a situa- situation where the ego didn't work, where whatever they did to get through was not going to get them through. Take a vision quest. It's a brilliant idea. And it still works. Vision, vision quest is one of the least dangerous types of initiations. And so it's really a good one for modern people. And so the young people, a person goes out and, and is waits inside a circle all by themselves in a per, part of nature until a vision comes. Well, there they are. They're not knowing. They're not running away. They're not calling on mommy and daddy. Well, probably they are, but not, not completely. And something is coming to them. And from nature, something comes that reveals their nature. And that's the beginning of having one's own life. It's the inheritance of each human born. And it's not even known in the modern world. And so you have all kinds of people who look grown up and many of them are given power and they don't even know who they are and they don't know they're wounded. And therefore they have no empathy for the wounds of others. And so that's what has to change. I think life gives us difficulties like a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. that it puts us in the place like I was in that prison cell. I'm not recommending prison for anybody and certainly not solitary confinement, but it sure does work. Uh, for me, it worked. Not, I was really post-traumatic from all of that, but in the meantime, I had a sense of self that I didn't have before I went in there. I mean, I knew something about who I was uh, and that's what people are lacking now. So then when the pressure comes down and the pressure's on everybody because of climate crisis, COVID crisis, the pressure is on everyone. And when I don't know who I am, I become depressed. I become despairing. I become overly anxious. I become chaotic. I think that's why so many people are attracted to meditation, for instance, because that would could for some people doesn't work for everybody, but it could lead to centering in oneself. In terms of mythology, 
all the troubles are not there to hurt us and stop us. They're there to awaken us. And the awakening is the awakening of the self that's already in there that knows what we came to life to do. And it doesn't end all one's troubles. It just makes the troubles meaningful. So we as wounded healers, many of us, as you say, are now wounded healers in the act of healing ourselves. But my inner conflict is understanding the ones that are not on that path. Sometimes we see people who are lives are destroyed by addiction and their, their lives end early. How is it an illusion that they are not on that path? To me, am I judging it? Or is there a story that can help us understand those who have to live those lives of destruction and, and not awakening into the wound? Well, I don't know if they have to, but some people get pulled into the underworld and they can't find their way out. Um, and psychologically, you could say sometimes there's not enough ego structure, there's not enough psychic structure, there's not enough psychic muscle. But when you get to addiction, they still don't know how much of that is body, how much of that is brain, how much of that is soul. I do notice that the word addiction has D-I-C-T, dict in the middle, which means to speak. And so in the limited work I've done with people who are addicted, there's a story that hasn't been told. Mm -hmm. And that story is the story of the original trauma. I've worked with battle veterans, I've worked with refugees, gang kids, all kinds of people in trauma. And I've found, my own experience, is if you can hold a person in a safe place that's challenging long enough, the core story will come out. And the core story goes back to the sense of abandonment early on. And it's often pre-verbal. And that's true with people in addiction too, although there's a voice trying to speak in there. So... The old idea is that you never abandon anybody because change can happen at any moment. So at the same time, not everybody makes it. And so that's a problem. Uh, and it's the same problem I think we're having inside modern culture, where you have people on opposite sides of a political issue or cultural issue. Of course, everything's political and cultural now, and it polarizes. And so you think all these people are lost. They're caught in a conspiracy theory, whatever it is. How do we save them? I think the only answer can come with how do I heal myself so that the context in which everybody's living becomes less divided and less dissociated. You can't help someone who's not aware that they need help or won't acknowledge it. That's the problem when someone's in addiction and if you and, and you love them, but until they hit rock bottom, that's the theory, they can't, they can't be helped. They have to say, they have to let go. And so you can't help someone who's not letting go. It's like you're on the bank of the river and they won't reach their hand. And so that's a terrible pain, suffering to realize. It's tragic to understand. And so the wounded healers become the ones that understand the tragedy. Mm -hmm. You know, from working with people in West Africa, you know, one of the songs that I learned is about how the whole village floods, torrential rain like these big storms we're having now. And it floods the fields and it floods the, the entire village and the homes. And eventually the, the river nearby swells and people are in the river and they're going by, they're drowning. And, and the song is sung from the banks of the river saying, here goes two people by, and one is my mother, and one is my wife, and I can only save one. And it keeps setting up these tragic circumstances in the song. And you realize you can only reach the people whose hand is close enough, and you can't pull someone out if you haven't done some healing yourself. Mm -hmm. Like on the airplane, when it's in trouble, they say, get your oxygen first, then help your child. So that's the same as do some healing of oneself. And when we heal parts of ourselves, the path turns and the path opens in a different way. And suddenly you can help. But it's not general help. It's not we're well-intentioned and if we try to help everything will get fixed. It gets very specific. You know, some people can work, do hospice work, and they can help the dying die well. Other people will mishandle that. Mm -hmm. Some people can work with violent folks. Other people cannot handle that. Mm -hmm. And so we have to learn who we are 
and what we can handle. And that's how it all changes. Not because we got some big idea and we went and we pulled everybody into safety. Not, no. The awakening happens one soul at a time. The healing happens one soul at a time. And I think any kind of saving that happens will be one at a time. And then eventually the collective changes because more people awakened and more people are on the healing path. And then the healing starts to have a collective effect. Like the hundredth monkey theory. Yeah, except that that theory turned out to be not based in much. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's like, it's the, okay, so we need the collective to change. Almost everybody knows that. The people that don't know that, well, it's hard to talk to them. But most people that care, most people that are interested in being more conscious, more awake, and most people interested in healing realize the whole thing has to change. This isn't a minor repair. This is a change of the worldview, change of understanding that we're not all separate, that we're interrelated and with the animals and the mushrooms as well. Uh, That's a huge change and you can't get it all at once. And so the old idea is history is made in the depths of the individual human soul. That's where it comes from. And all that we can affect is our own self at a certain level. And then you find yourself, you know, you go through, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm scared. And I can feel some woundedness inside myself. Maybe that's what I need to do. And then the next thing, a path opens and you're on the path. And and the issue isn't, oh, everybody has to be on my path. That doesn't even make sense. It literally doesn't make sense. So, but my path could eventually lead to an intersection. And at that intersection, without me being in charge of it, energy is there saying we need to change and you show up with whatever you have your knowledge about nature your knowledge about culture your knowledge about nursing your knowledge about whatever it is and now what you've been working on has led you into a situation that's bigger and not you being the savior or the hero you being yourself in a soulful way that has humility and understands you know the ground you're on, that has a bigger effect than you were having before. And enough people doing that, those intersections then start to affect the collective. That's how I understand it. That's what myth seems to say. Mm-hmm. And so I'm saying non-heroic. Mm-hmm. I think hero heroics are part of the problem. The savior. I think I remember you saying that because did you say it's a little masculine? Is that a part of the problem? Yeah. So the I have to like the hero's myth because it's the only myth that anybody's recognized in my lifetime. I mean, I've been stumbling around with myths since I was 13 years of, of, of age. And then the first thing that ever happened where I saw the same ideas in the culture was Joseph Campbell bringing the hero's myth into the culture. The problem is... Um, And it really occurs right in the book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, like on the fourth page or third page, he says, this is the monomyth. No, no. Myth is multiple, like nature. Nature thrives on diversity, so does mythology. There is no monomyth. There is no one story. That's a mistake. So what happened is myth became heroic myth. But there's myths that aren't heroic at all, like the myth of the wounded healer is not heroic. Mm -hmm. The wounded healer never heals the wound, never heals his, her own wound, but learns how to heal other people's wounds. That's a complicated story about the soul. So anyway, heroics, heroes, tend to be increasingly with modern um, movies, but all those heroic movies that go on and on with all the different characters with superpowers, which aren't actually helping the world that much and all the games that the kids are playing uh, with heroics in the games. Uh, That's a, that's a distortion of mythology. Um, And so the hero tends to be masculine, muscular, outward oriented into dominance and um, having to succeed. And, and that's the plan that's not working. Wow. You can't be heroic when you're dealing with nature. Nature is not even impressed with the idea. Nature can have an earthquake or a thunderstorm or hit you with lightning. What do you got? 
Very little. So I, I, I started talking about the genius myth because genius, uh, the word genius means the spirit that's in the person when they're born. It doesn't say the masculine spirit, the feminine spirit. It says the unique spirit. So genius is open to uh, girls, to boys, to wounded people, more open to wounded people than others, um, rejected people. Um, so everybody has some genius. Not that everybody is a genius. Everybody has a genius style and a genius way of being. And Carl Jung, the psychologist, said, genius hides behind the wound. Find the wound, you're actually closer to the genius. That's what we found uh, in our organization working with young people. If we get, young pe we get the most wounded young people together and go to work, we're actually going to see the awaken of awakening of genius right before our eyes. A real good teacher will know that too. The, the heroic story is not going to get us out of it, and it has partly got us into it. Wow, interesting. Because um, storytelling is so transcending and powerful and moving and, and healing, I just am curious if you could share with us your practice for daily living of how you stay so connected with the living myth in your own life. Do you have a practice where you read every morning, or what do you, or do you just share with people like we're doing now? Yeah, I will share it, but I want to, the caveat is this kind of works for me, <laughs> you know? So first of all, I, I write dreams down almost every day and have been doing so for over 40 years because dreams are stories. They really appear just like stories and they're so informative. And, and I have found myths that in different cultures showing how the dreams are coming from the center of the cosmos. Um, anyway, so that's interesting. So, so part of my waking up is actually staying in connected to the dream world. Um, and then uh, the first thing I do is write. Uh, I, I'll write the dream and then I'll go, I call it writing. It doesn't mean writing for publishing. Sometimes I'm writing for publishing, but sometimes I'm writing because it's a practice. It puts me in language. And I'm almost always connecting it to stories. And so I'm immersed in it. And so what happens now is I will try to be in that space for three to five hours every morning. Phone's off. I usually don't answer to anything. I try to be in that space. And I call it the space of the muses. So the, mu the old idea was a creative person and an artist. In the modern world, people will say, that's how I do it. But but the old idea was, that's how I allow it to come through me. So the muses uh, are trying to get imagination and music and art into the world all the time. And so what I found is a way of keeping myself more open to that. Mm -hmm. And I try, and I'm fortunate enough, I can take that time usually, usually in the morning. And so, um, and then my usual other thing is is telling stories taking all the work i've been doing and then marrying it up with a story and then as i said in the process it's a creative process moment to moment it's not a script at all it's like uh the natural extension of that morning practice of working with images and language and stories I try to keep in touch with zoom, drumming. Zoom doesn't like drumming, and so I don't drum on Zoom. But And why drumming? Because it's musical, and it keeps me connected to uh, resonance. Like in traditional stories, they'll often say, not in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was sound, the wow. sound. And the sound continues to reverberate. And each person is a unique resonance and reverberating entity connected to that original creation that made all the reverberations. And so that's a good connection to me. In other words, I feel connected to story. I feel connected to dreams. And I also feel connected to music through rhythm and sometimes other kinds of music. I also keep connected to poetry. Those are all things that nourish me and remind me of the path. And I know it's unusual to say in a way in the modern world, but all artists are on the healing path. All the old arts were intended to bring 
the unseen world, the mythological world together with this world. And nowadays arts are, you know, considered a, a career. Um, they're considered industry, the music industry, the museum industry. It's all a misunderstanding. All of that was so that humans would stay connected to the energy of creation. And so that maybe leads me to the other practice, which is trying to create things, telling a story differently every time. Uh, right now, not having any plan, just watching the images, listening to your questions and your thoughts, and then finding the words that go around that. Because in creating something, a person is tapping into the original creation. It is so powerful. The mother giving birth to a child, people say it's a miracle, but what kind of miracle? It's creation right there. A new being that wasn't present is now. But the same energy that creates a child creates a work of art. And the issue isn't, it is at some point, and maybe for some more than others, you know, can I sell it? Can I be recognized for it? The issue is to be in the making of it and find that process in which I am connected to the energy of creation. I'm helping create the next world. In a sense, it's that simple. It gets complicated because of psychology because of economics and all that. For me, the practices are mostly connected to trying to be related to creation and being in creative moments. That's how it is for me. The ancient idea is there's two paths of practice. One is creative expressive arts and the other is meditation and inward contemplation. A most people go on both over time uh, because one is the inward uh, quieting and the other is the outward expressing. And so there's a way in which when I'm working on stories and stuff, there is a kind of inward, it's contemplative, if not directly meditative. Mm -hmm. People in order to be real, in order to be creative, in order to be themselves, need some kind of practices. And so like when people are getting older, I know a lot of uh, people who are older and many of them play music. And then some of them are still lamenting that they didn't become a rock star, mm -hmm. but that's not really the point. <laughs> yeah. The point is to be connected to the muses and let the music come through because that music is tuning the body and the soul. And when a person plays music and it's genuine, everybody who listens is benefited by that act of creativity. It literally makes community and it literally makes healing. Wow. Well, how can we support you and follow what your next um, projects are? Where would you like um, the listeners to find you and follow you? So I think the, the quickest way, and it's very modern, is uh, uh, the, uh, the website is Mosaic Voices, one word, mosaicvoices.org. And there they can find podcasts. We have a free podcast called Living Myth. And, and there's essays and you can get books and there's all kinds of stuff, uh, like a marketplace, mythological marketplace. And then I was mentioning, so the thing is, it's great talking with you, especially because of the subject, because I am immersed now in Wounded Healer as an archetype of the time. And so we're about to, in a couple of weeks maybe, start this live series where it's two evenings, where I'm presenting on this wounded healer and then a workshop that takes it into a deep place. So that's, that's the cutting edge for Mosaic. Mosaic is our nonprofit. That's the cutting edge for Mosaic right now. I'd love to be a part of that. That sounds awesome. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, it certainly will be interesting. I'm trying to point to the archetypal energies that are trying to come through us. And, and one is, what people call apocalypse. The Greek word was apocalypsis, which really means collapse renewal. That's what apocalypse is, not the fiery end, is collapse renewal. And both are happening. And then the next archetype I was just talking about is the archetype of creation. We've got plenty, plenty of chaos, plenty of roaring in the bushes, and that generates creativity. So we're being invited to create things, new forms of healing, new forms of nursing, new forms of art, new forms of where that edge is available right now. And then the third one I'm adding to that is wounded healing.
because if we don't know that we're wounded, we won't get around to doing the healing, which is what everyone and the whole earth needs. Well, thank you so much. I want to go outside and create music right now. I want to have a wound on myself so I can, you know, mark my own initiation process. But I've just enjoyed this so much. And I just have just such incredible gratitude. And I, I just love to stay connected through your website. So thank you so much for coming. Okay, well, let's stay connected. And thank you. Great being with you. And great to hear about your story. Thanks, Michael. That episode was incredible. Please check out my website at www.tanyagilbert.com and check out your free Healed Hero Checklist as we start to uncover the healing of our own wound to discover our own genius. It's just a wonderful booklet. And by doing so, you will sign up for my emails where I will send you updates about the latest episodes. Stay tuned. Take care of yourself. Look inward.